Aloha. You are listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. My guest today, Locked On Hawks' own Brad Rowland, here to talk about the 2020 NBA Draft. Welcome aboard, Brad. Chad, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to do this, and it should be a lot of fun. Brad, I want to. I know that you have a, a big following of of Hawks fans and people that listen to, listen to your daily podcast uh, on the Atlanta Hawks. But I want to introduce you to our draft audience and maybe people who haven't uh, come across your podcast before. So talk to me a little bit about how you got involved in covering the NBA draft and your approach to to scouting the draft. Yeah, I would say that um, first and foremost, the draft's been my favorite day of the year probably for a long, long time. Um, even before I was doing this um, professionally or something like something approaching professionally, um, it's been a day that I've always looked forward to. I grew up sort of as a nerdy basketball diehard. I played a little bit. I was not a great basketball player, but played through high school. And uh, as a kid, kind of made the draft a holiday of sorts, uh, looking forward to it, dissecting as much as a, a younger person can do. And from there, I started um, sort of building up. I would start making my own big boards going back to high school. Uh, nothing terribly uh, intricate at that point in time, but doing as much as I possibly could uh, through, through college, sort of blogging on my own, consuming everything, honestly, from uh, actually your stuff on ESPN to NBADraft.net or whatever else was available at that point in time and just talking about it with friends. And I started covering the Hawks uh, in 2013 um, on a credentialed level and going to games and building relationships locally, um, sort of translating that into going to summer league and making making friends around the league, not just in Hawks circles. Although I will say it's gotten more serious in the last few years with, I guess, the help of the Hawks not being very good, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, the last three, four years, it's been a lot of draft stuff. That's kind of the reality. When you cover a team that is not making playoff runs is that you have a lot of time and space. And I already love the draft. So it made sense for me to kind of just dive into it more and more. And that actually led to me get, me getting some NBA draft work with uh, Dime over on Uprock Sports, talking about national stuff there, um, honestly, starting with the draft and then branching off into other things. So it's been a long, winding journey. I would say it's been more serious lately, but still the fact that uh, I just I just always love the draft and that process and being a college basketball guy growing up and sort of bridging that gap. It was a natural thing to uh, get involved with. I love that story. I, I get a lot of emails, obviously, from people who love the draft and say, you know, how do I get involved or how do I how do I become a draft expert? And and there's obviously a number of paths to get there, but your story isn't that different from mine. I didn't study journalism. I started a website when I was in college uh, and my favorite day of the year, like you, was the NBA draft. And so I gave more attention to the draft than anything else. And one of my first things that I was doing back on sportstalk.com and nbatalk.com, which was my website that, that ESPN bought in 2001, was aggregating the various mock drafts that were out there. There wasn't a draft site back in those days. I'm I'm pretty old. I started that in 1996. <laughs> but you know, newspaper writers, like people like Sam Smith, for example, would put together these mock drafts and we would sort of aggregate them all together and you know talk about them and that 
led to going to NBA draft camps and building relationships with NBA teams. And and then when I got to ESPN, that was going to be a big focus, something that I was really passionate about that I wanted to work on. And and so my advice to people is you just start, you start writing, you start blogging, you start putting together stuff, have a distinctive voice or an idea um, around this. Of, of course, there are people that approach the, the, the draft differently. They may come from the NBA world and from the scouting world, but I think there's a lot of different ways to approach it. And one of the things that I think is really cool, like you said, that NBA teams were really accommodating to me, uh, credentialing me, um, you know, talking to me about the draft. And, you know, from there, it just, it became a passion of mine. Still is all these years later. Love talking draft uh, with whoever wants to talk about it, but especially people um, that have been in it like you have. And that was my joke on my podcast the other day. If you, if you cover the Hawks, or the Kings, or a few teams, you sort of by proxy become a draft expert. And so I'm excited to dive into it with you today and want to start with the question that's on everybody's mind right now. There's no consensus number one pick in this draft. I don't think anybody at this point knows what the Minnesota Timberwolves are going to do at number one. And whether you're looking on the internet for NBA draft boards, or you're talking to NBA teams about their draft boards, they're all over the place on who is going to be the number one prospect in the draft. I've had LaMelo Ball, number one on my big board, uh, really uh, since I debuted my big board uh, 1.0. We had John Hollinger on last week. He also has LaMelo Ball. Jeremy Wu uh, was on the other day. He had Anthony Edwards, number one. So my first question to you, Brad, is regardless of team and team needs for a minute, who should be the number one pick in this draft just based on talent? I think, like you said, it's it's a pretty common refrain this year to not be incredibly set on your number one. Uh, I do have a number one, but uh, there should be. This is not a draft that has a traditional dominant number one that almost everybody agrees on. So I will say that. But I'm actually with you on this one. I have I have Lamelo Ball at the top of my board. Uh, he's been there for a while for me as well. Um, I will say there are probably some teams in which it wouldn't make sense. So he's not like an overwhelming number one for me in that way. But I'm pretty comfortable with LaMelo at the top. I think that um, upside-wise, there's a lot to like there. There are certainly some questions in a way that you may not love for a number one overall draft pick. And I think there are arguments for other guys. Maybe maybe Anthony Edwards, who's another popular uh, number one overall player, certainly has his arguments as well. And if you want to uh, go in a different direction, maybe James Wiseman, um, if you are viewing things through that prism, makes some sense. But ultimately, I think LaMelo is number one. And honestly, it's, it's kind of weird slash funny that I've started a little bit of work on next year's draft in 2021. And I think talking to some people about that draft, there might be five, six, seven players in that class that people would like more than anybody in this class. So it's kind of strange, but I do like LaMelo. I think that he is a very talented player and uh, sort of in that vacuum of a big board setting, he's my top guy. This draft that I've said recently reminds me a lot of the 2013 NBA draft in that the the Cavs had the number one pick. There was six or seven guys, I believe, that they brought in that were under serious consideration. They they made the worst possible choice, <laughs> taking Anthony Bennett number one. But there is some defense for them in that while that I think was a surprise and and maybe the most surprised I had ever been as a draft analyst on draft night. I I didn't see that one coming. But the other guys, Otto Porter, Victor Oladipo, Nerlens Noel, 
you know, the other prospects that people were considering as potential number one picks, they all had their flaws. There was not a prospect out there that just leapt off the page the way that maybe a Zion Williamson or an Anthony Davis were to leap off the page and it becomes clear who's number one. And so, you know, one of the things that people push back on LaMelo is, you know, he has these weaknesses to his game. And I think that's accurate, but I think you have to recognize that in certain drafts, there isn't that prospect that's available that doesn't have a major question mark attached to their projection or their game. And it's not like if we go to Anthony Davis or James Wiseman or Killian Hayes or Tyrese Halliburton, that they don't also raise some significant questions that make you a little bit uncomfortable taking them with the number one pick. So instead of focusing on the negatives, because I think we we understand the weaknesses that LaMelo Ball brings to the table, what's the argument for him? Why does he stand above the other people on your board at number one? Yeah, I think it's it's actually good to focus on the positive sometimes, especially in this class that has this never-ending cycle, especially you know, the extra months give you more time to nitpick and you kind of lose focus sometimes of what these guys can do, especially even at the top. Um, I think that Ball, as a primary creator prospect, is really intriguing. Uh, you know, His passing kind of speaks for itself if you've watched him play, but he's so creative. Um, and being the size that he is at, as an actual lead guard prospect, there's a lot of wiggle room there in a good way if you can be a lead guard at 6'7 and be able to pass the way that he does and feel the game the way that he does, um, I think there that sort of helps your floor even a little bit. Um, I think a lot of people probably view LaMelo Ball as a high ceiling, low floor prospect. And I get that to some extent, but I think his floor is actually reasonably high provided that you know non-disastrous outcomes come to fruition because... Yes, he has to figure out how to play defense to some degree, but he has real he has real tools. And the passing itself is huge. And the fact that he can really handle the ball at a really high level for someone his size, the shooting is a question, but I think he is aggressive, and that's probably a good thing, all things considered. It can be bad eventually if you don't work your way out of it or become a better shooter, one of the two. But I think his offensive talent package is really, really intriguing. And then defensively, just the fact that he feels the game so well, I think he plays with a good IQ. He plays he plays off the ball reasonably well at times. There are flashes. His development path is very strange, which I think adds to some of the intrigue and also to the skepticism in some level because he didn't really play against a lot of competition, uh, and at least in structure, until he got to Australia. But I think the flashes that he's put together are really intriguing enough to where you can kind of see past the things that scare you a little bit. They have to still be there on some level, but I think overall the package between size, creativity, skill level, and uh, just the aggressive persona and everything that he brings to the table, I think that package, if it were to work out, is uh, very enticing. I think you you brought up a key point with LaMelo. The development path for him is highly unusual. I think his biggest red flag or the, the biggest thing holding him back in draft projection is that developmental path, the attachment to his dad, and people looking at that and reading, I think, perhaps the wrong things into it. As, as a young man, I don't think he had as much control over that development path. Uh, as sometimes I think teams want to want to put on him. But I had a general manager uh, just the other day say something that I actually thought was really astute about LaMelo Ball that I think puts this into context. 
if you were to change the development path and he had played college basketball this season, he, he in his estimate, this would be a no-brainer who the number one pick in the draft would be. And it'd be LaMelo Ball. You would have seen him at a, at a level that you're more comfortable with at the college basketball level, doing all of the special things that LaMelo Ball does, playing against people that are his age. And he would have popped in a way that was much more difficult for him to pop in Australia. It would have erased many of the questions that people would have had about the developmental path. And it would have been really clear. And I actually think that's a great way to sort of think about it in that had he played college basketball this year, knowing that we what we know about his skill set and knowing how ready I think he would have been to play at a high level in college, this would be a much easier question than it's been because he went to Australia and he's associated with all the things, all things ball. I totally agree, actually. It's, uh, it's really interesting. Obviously, we don't know for sure how it would have played out, but especially when you look at his competition for number one overall – it wasn't as if Anthony Edwards put together this masterful college season. Uh, he, he, I mean, yeah. he was he was obviously very productive in terms of you know raw raw numbers, but he wasn't terribly efficient playing in the SEC. Uh, James Wiseman hardly played in college, so I, I think that if people had seen more of Lamelo Ball in that way that they're more accustomed to, I think if obviously you know people that were making these decisions that are in NBA front offices, I've seen I've seen a lot of him, but he's not. The well-known, he's, it's, it's really strange, actually. He's very well-known in terms of the name because he was always on these mixtapes and Lithuania and Big Baller brand and all that stuff, but people haven't really seen him play against normal competition for a player of his age. So I'm actually with you. It's a good, it's a good point. I think it would be clearer, and I think he would have done quite well against college competition, and I, I kind of wish we had seen it because it would have been a lot easier. Okay, let's let's move past LaMelo Ball for a second, and, and we'll... We've talked about Anthony Edwards ad nauseum on this, uh, James Wiseman. Who's the next guy for you? You know, those those three names have popped up in conversations for the number one pick. There's been a huge debate. We ran a poll uh, on Twitter, and it was pretty evenly split uh, between those three. Ironically, I was actually shocked James Wiseman came out ahead as the number one prospect. But about 20... 21, 22% of people said it's someone else. I don't think it's going to be someone else. I think it's probably going to be one of those three guys uh, with the number one pick. But after that group, who's the next guy for you on your board that you're excited about in this draft? Yeah, like you said, I'll be surprised if it's somebody else. You have better sources than I do, but I can't imagine it being somebody else, quite frankly. Um, Actually, you know, sort of practically going number one. I think if I had to pick someone, it probably would be Killian Hayes. Um, he's another guy with sort of an interesting path, but I, he would be the guy that I think would be the most logical in terms of um, what teams maybe are looking for near the top of a draft. I'm not sure he has the star equity that LaMelo Ball or Anthony Edwards have, but I like a lot of what Killian Hayes brings to the table. And quite honestly, I'm not sure anybody else that you could project, you know, stardom in a traditional sense in this draft. Uh, and with Hayes, you're at least getting that potential primary creator that teams are all looking for, especially if they don't have one already. And I, I think he, I think he's a, he's a pretty interesting prospect. I've heard you talk about him already as well. And I know people have uh, had him pretty highly. I know Kevin O'Connor has been really high on him the entire time. I wouldn't have Hayes at number one or anything like that, but I think if you're making me choose someone that's not the consensus top three, he would be the guy that I would center on. Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, I had Kevin O'Connor on really early when I I brought the NBA Big Board pod back, 
and he's been very consistent all year. Yeah, he's had Killian Hayes number one on his big board. He's not projecting that he'll go with the number one pick, but he's he's saying that that in his mind is the best prospect in this draft. And I was a little bit surprised. And and when I canvassed some NBA teams, none of them none of them saw it that way um, at the time. But when I started digging into the tape on Killian Hayes, I, I kind of saw where Kevin was coming from on this. And I think it's, a, again, interesting development path. And so, you know, there's, there's this mindset and psychology behind the draft as well. Killian Hayes, at the start of last year, uh, when he started his season in 2019, no one was thinking about him as a potential number one pick or a potential top five pick. He goes to Germany. He dramatically improves. And and so he kind of incrementally starts to move up boards a little bit. And it's really hard to jump from like the teens or 20s up into the top five. It's just actually a really hard thing to do, I think, psychologically for teams and for the media. And that's why I thought it was so bold that Kevin O'Connor did it. But in this particular case, I I think this is a case where sometimes the media can help a player's prospects because I think it opened up space for NBA teams to reconsider that. And there are a number of teams now that have him in their top 10 and, and some of them in their top five. And I, I think his play on the court certainly warrants it. What was hurting him is he didn't have the hype coming in that some of these other prospects did. And even for international prospects, Denny Avdia, for example, had that coming into this draft in ways that Killian Hayes didn't. But I'm pretty convinced that if you were to ask me which international player should go first, I, I think it's a no-brainer that it's Killian Hayes, not Denny Avdia. Yeah, we agree on that. I, not that I'm trying to slight Denny, but I think that Hayes is just a little bit more intriguing from an upside perspective. I think that Denny is going to be a pretty solid NBA player. There's a lot to like there, um, but I am skeptical, at least on some level, of the upside. Uh, I think he benefits a little bit from like what you said, the hype machine that was already there. Um, I think for better or worse, and I would say worse, he's benefiting from Luka Doncic. Um, he's being compared to, there, to him in a way that he shouldn't be, and that's not a slight to Denny. It's just not the comparison that should be out there for him. But I do think that Hayes would be, um, I won't say very clearly, but certainly my number one guy internationally. Um, and there's there's a lot to like about him. I do think that, uh, going back to what we said at the beginning, Hayes is not a guy who would traditionally be in the number one conversation. I, I will say that about him. But... I think if, especially if you buy his shooting, that's probably the question that people have with him more than any, because the shot has not always gone in at a high level. If you think that's going to come around, especially with his pull-up shooting, that's an area, if you buy it, then there's a ton to like there. Even for a guy who is not the most explosive athlete in the world, it helps to be 6'5". It's sort of the same thing with LaMelo Ball, who's a little bit even even longer than Hayes is. But if you're a lead guard and you're a stout 6'5", there's just more wiggle room there. I think that you're absolutely right, and that argument works for him. And again, there is some questions about the shooting. There is some questions about the left-handed ball dominance. But teams don't seem super concerned on that. The form looks good. The free-throw shooting's good. Some of the other tells that you you dive into on shooting all point in Killian Hayes' direction. And I think this is interesting both with him and a guy that I have one uh, spot ahead of him, Tyrese Halliburton out of Iowa State. They, they offer a different type of prospect. There aren't, they, they seem to have higher floors uh, maybe than some of the other prospects that are above them. So there's less likely that they bust, 
but it's also their ceilings seem a little lower than those other guys, right? That if they really hit, how hard does Killian Hayes or a Tyrese Halliburton hit? Are they, you know, an all-star? Are they a superstar? And you can really question that. And typically you want that with your number one pick. You want a player that can be a franchise changing player, which is why I think the conversation has been more limited to a Wiseman, to a LaMelo, to an Edwards, because they have certain aspects of their game that if they hit, they could hit big. That makes total sense. And I agree. I do think that Hayes has a little bit more sort of traditional upside because he is an on-ball player who can create a little bit, but I would not describe him as a super high upside pick and definitely definitely that's the case for Halliburton he's more of a linking player that can really raise your ceiling I think and be very helpful in a lot of different ways for a good team but he's not someone that's going to be the sort of the engine of your offense he's not someone that's going to break you down off the dribble and get to the rim and really be you know this hyper explosive um, athlete or creator and attacker he's more of that you know role player in the best possible way um, a guy who can do a ton for you but I just don't see a lot of clear paths for someone like Halliburton to really make a sort of a star turn I think if he does that it'll be as a star role player which are extremely valuable but those those guys are not what you traditionally would associate with the number one overall pick all right Brad uh, we're going to come back and we're going to talk about some there's parody throughout this draft not just at the top and we're going to talk about some guys that made your big board that didn't make mine and introduce some new names uh, into this podcast. And so we'll be back in a few minutes. Listen to our sponsors. Built Bar is the best tasting protein bar ever. The improved Built Bar tastes even better than the old ones. There are 18 amazing flavors, six new flavors, caramel brownie, cookies and cream, cherry barcia, lemon almond cheesecake, carrot cake, Apple Almond Crisp, that's on top of all of the original flavors that you typically love, the coconut almond, the raspberry, the banana bread, one of my favorites, the mint brownie. Also love that orange bar and the coconut one as well, of course, being in Hawaii. And the great thing about these bars is that they taste like a candy bar, but they're actually healthy. And for for someone like me who exercises a lot and runs a lot and cares a lot, about what he puts into his system. I love the fact that it's low calorie, it's low sugar, it's got high protein, it's got high fiber, 19 grams of protein, uh, in fact, which is which is pretty awesome. And so go to builtbar.com and use promo code locked on. That's builtbar.com. Use promo code locked on and you'll get 20% off your next order. Use promo code locked on for 20% off at builtbar.com. And we are back. I'm with Brad Rowland, Locked On Hawks. Talking 2020 NBA draft. And we're going to start talking about that that parody that we talked about at the top of the draft 
exists all the way through this draft. And so when you start to thinking about who are first round players and who aren't, there's probably a bubble group of 20 to 25 players in this draft that are sort of sitting there depending on teams and a lot of variance in big boards as you get into the late teens and early 20s. And Brad, I want to talk about a few guys that, that you mentioned to me were higher on your list than on mine. And let's start with Xavier Tillman. Yeah, Tillman is a guy I've always loved, and he's very interesting in that uh, he does not have the measurables. He does not necessarily have the offensive package, and I know he's a little bit divisive in the people that I have talked to as well. I've you know you can find fans of him, you can find skeptics, and I think it's also kind of indicative that there was some drama about whether Tillman was actually going to declare for the draft. Um, there were there was buzz that he wouldn't that he actually actually go back to Michigan State despite being a, a pretty old prospect. He was at least considering, reportedly, going back to school, and that was, I assume, because of the uh, relative, um, not not necessarily skepticism, but not is it uh, not necessarily being overly excited about his prospects in the NBA. But he's just a guy who does a lot of things well that I think can translate very well to the NBA. I think his feel is off the charts. I think his basketball IQ is very evident if you watch him play. Um, on both ends, really. Defensively, he's always in the right. He's always in the right spot. Um, is he going to be a monumental rim protector? Maybe not, because he's not the he's not the longest guy in the world. I think he's about six nine. He's got decent length, but not like seven foot traditional center length. But he's just he's he moves well. He's extremely strong. I think he got the best of a lot of the guys who maybe rank ahead of him on some boards, like Daniel Oturu, a couple of the other bigs around the Big Ten. Tillman was just better than those guys at the college level and that doesn't always translate but I think his uh, his anchor ability as a, as a defender is pretty interesting and then offensively if he ever shoots it would be nice but even if he doesn't he's a great short roll passer I think he's a good fit on a good team especially and part of what you said before about there being this sort of wide group and I, I agree with it by the way of guys who you know between the mid to late first into the second round it's kind of you know pick your poison to some extent or pick your favorite players or there's not a whole lot of divide there but I think for the good teams which are usually the teams picking in the 20s you can find some maybe not super high upside players but guys who will fit guys who will play well for you I would say sooner rather than later you're getting them for cheap and they might be able to contribute you don't want to aim necessarily for low upside but Tillman is a guy who I think could contribute relatively quickly which isn't everything but it certainly matters and I'm not sure I'm not saying he should be a lottery picker or anything like that but for where you can probably get him in the 20s maybe even the 30s I think the value is pretty good there as someone who can stay on the court potentially at the end of a game and really not hurt you anywhere and just kind of be that versatile talented um, but uh, also like you know very solid overall big it's really interesting with Tillman I've been covering the draft for a long time there's always an upperclassman who just is so solid at what they do that they are going to be the guy that goes in the first round then immediately starts contributing and then everybody's going to be on the sort of bandwagon why don't teams draft more upperclassmen why are they always focusing on upside and not on production and, and what have you and he does seem like he could be that guy uh, in this year's draft and I think that given the lack of depth in this draft and the lack of you know there's only a couple of players that really start to stand out as you start getting deeper in this draft that have like huge 
upsides that you might might be worth swinging for the fences for you know maybe like a you know Jaden McDaniels or something like that who has huge warts but if they hit they could hit big this isn't a bad draft strategy to start to think about again as a cheap role player who could come in and do some things for you uh, off the bench and just be satisfied with that with your draft pick yeah I think that oftentimes you know early in the draft you want to have some upside and you want to look for that especially if you're a team that does not have stars already you want to try to find your next guy or foundational pieces and I totally understand that but if you get into the later part of the draft you're generally again you're a good team usually and not that contributing as a rookie is uh, the only bar you need to worry about but it is helpful to get some older guys who are more established that you don't want to aim only for guys who can play for you quickly but I think Tillman is the kind of player and it's not only him there are other examples in this draft but he can be a quality role player for you for several years and that, that that's not necessarily the sexiest thing in the world to think about but especially if you're trying to win at the highest level a big that can be on the floor late in games, a big that can switch, a big that can play in drop coverage, handle the short roll a little bit, just not take much off the table. There is some real value in that. And like you said, there's always a guy or two or three that just slip too far and you, you see it coming a mile away, but they just shouldn't go that far. And I think Tillman's a, a pretty prime candidate for, that, candidate for that this year. I think he might just go 10 spots too low and it won't be a crime. It won't be just indefensible for the teams that passed on him, but the team that gets him, I think will be in a good spot. Let's talk about Trey Jones out of Duke. His brother, Tyus Jones, selected 24th in the 2015 NBA draft. And a lot of things that teams said about Tyus Jones, uh, who was a you know dominant point guard uh, for Duke uh, that year, they're saying about Trey Jones uh, as well. And again, he's a bit of a polarizing prospect between the scouts that say, hey, he can just play. He can really play and quit focusing on his weaknesses and people that are going to hyper-focus on what he doesn't bring to the table in terms of you know elite athleticism and speed and pop. Uh, and so what, why do you have Trey Jones in the first round? Yeah, I, I think a year or two ago, I would have been more skeptical of Jones, especially offensively. Um, that's still probably the concern with him as a point guard prospect, because normally at point guard, you're probably looking for offense more than defense. But he took a step forward, I thought, this last year at Duke. And he's not, like, super old. You know, sometimes the problem is if you get a guy who stays around college so long that they start looking better, it's because it's because now they're just older and they've done they, the competition level's a little bit below them. He's still fairly young. I think I wouldn't worry about that too much. And I think you don't want him to necessarily be a primary engine of your offense, but he's someone who can run a second unit, I think, as a lead guard. He improved his pull-up shooting, I thought, and his passing during his second season at Duke. There's enough there to build on. And I like his finishing, too, his transition play. He just plays hard. There's something, there's something that you got into there as well, but this is a guy who just does a lot of things well. He's not excellent at anything other than maybe on-ball defense, but he just he plays really hard. He's physical. He uh, I think he's a kind of an underrated athlete. Not not a terribly explosive guy, not necessarily a combine wonder, but someone who is a solid athlete who uses his, uses his length well and an accomplished player. That can be overrated at times, but this is a, this is the ACC player of the year. This is a guy who did a lot at the college level and the comparison to his brother is out there. They're similar in some aspects some, some, and not similar in others. But I think that once you get into the 20s, there's a lot to like about Trey Jones. He's not going to be a star. I think that's pretty unlikely. But if you're looking for a rotational guard, someone who can maybe back up your point guard, also play alongside him if, that, if it's a bigger point guard, um, a depth piece, 
or maybe, you know, long-term, maybe he can, he can be a middle-of-the-road starter. And that's, again, not terribly exciting on paper, but if you get in the 20s and you get and you can find a long-term contributor for you that's a two-way player, that's, uh, I think, the value just same, almost similarly to Tillman. The value is such where if you're getting him at an appropriate spot, you like that a lot. And the other thing that we can point out here, too, is that as far as a point guard draft goes, this is a fairly weak draft as you're looking for point guards and that that could help his cause um, as well especially if you're going to cast him in that role much like the role that his brother is playing frankly you know at the NBA as a as a guy that's going to run that second unit unit not make mistakes play his butt off play great on on the ball defense and he's not going to make make a lot of mistakes and and sometimes that's all you need to ask for in your second unit point guard I totally agree. I mean, if he if he has the same path as Tyus, I don't want to I don't want to compare those guys exclusively. But if that's the kind of player he becomes, if you if you if you have that guy in the twenties, that's that's a perfectly fine value. Like no one's terribly excited about Tyus Jones as their long term starting point guard, but he's a competent you know top forty ish point guard in the NBA. And if if you find that guy at twenty two or twenty four in the draft, that's a good value. Okay, let's do one more, Grant Riller. What do you like about him? Riller's really fascinating, honestly, on a lot of levels. He's very old, which is scary. He'll be 24 in February, which is ancient by today's NBA draft standards. He also played at a small school in Charleston, so he's divisive as a result of that. But he's truly a talented scorer and a shot maker. He had absolutely absurd efficiency numbers at Charleston, and I know it's Charleston and people will roll their eyes at that, but you can't fake what he was able to do, I don't think, at least not all the way. I I believe in the pull-up shooting. He's a good free-throw shooter. I think that's a pretty strong indicator of his shooting long-term. I won't say he's a, he's a great passer, but he's a solid enough playmaker. I think he got a lot better at that during college. He's a good ball handler as well. Um, the worry with Riller, other than age, is his defense was not good, and given that you know, being a bad defender at Charleston is pretty jarring for an NBA draft prospect. That's worth noting, and it's certainly a concern. But I've compared him, not necessarily as a player overall, but sort of the same role that he could fit into to someone like Lou Williams. They're not exactly the same, but that that sort of small guard, hyper-efficient offensive player, he can create for himself, be that sixth, seventh man for you off the bench, pass enough to keep the offense moving. You have to cover for him on defense a little bit, but I think he could be efficient enough on offense to really be intriguing. I think I think he's a first-round talent. I'm not sure he's going to go in the first round, but again, in the 20s, like if you're a team, I don't know, if you're a team like the Lakers, and you could probably use some more juice in the backcourt, and you have a late first-round pick, and he's an older guy who might be able to help you sooner rather than later, I think you could probably do a lot worse than that, and I think that Riller... If you're just talking about offense only, he's I think he's better than a lot of the guys that he is compared to in that range of the position. The worry is defense, and if that scares you, I totally understand, but I do buy the offense. Uh, interestingly, uh, to support that, he ranked ninth overall in the NCAA in isola- isolation scoring. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there's something that you can point to uh, with him. There are teams that like you say, that that like him in the 20s. There's teams that have him in the 40s or 50s. That's the nature uh, of this draft. And I, I think there's an interesting trend, uh, uh, Brad, that you've, you've brought to the prospects that, that you are favoring a little bit more, which is you're worrying less about upside and you're thinking about impact uh, and the role that they might be able to play in the NBA. And I, and I think that's that's a good approach 
when you're thinking about the end of the first round or early second round? Yeah, I think I'm I'm pragmatic to some degree. And again, we're talking about guys who are not lottery prospects. It's a little bit different in the lottery in that you really have to think about upside a little bit more there. But I often think that, you know, not not, not necessarily floor, but like median outcome is kind of underrated at times because you can get um Guys who are just kind of boring, and boring is the wrong word, maybe, but someone who's not necessarily going to blow you away in a workout, there's there's room for those guys at the end of the first round. And yes, there's still space to take flyers as well, especially if you're a team that doesn't have a need or doesn't doesn't necessarily need someone in the rotation right away, you can maybe take a bigger swing and justify that, and I'm all on board. There are certain times in the 20s where it makes sense to take a Jade McDaniels big swing and try to find some upside, but for certain teams that may have a need that they have to plug or may want to get value out of those guys, I do think that floor or median outcome can be undervalued when looking for a ceiling exclusively. When we come back, We're going to talk about what some teams should do in the lottery with their lottery picks. We can talk all we want about big boards, but every team has their own needs, their own ways of looking at at prospects. And it's important at this point in the draft to start to think about what specific teams will do. We'll be back with Brad Rowland from Locked on Hawks after these messages. are back talking 2020 NBA draft with Brad Rowland from Locked On Hawks. And we are going to start with your specialty. The Atlanta Hawks have the sixth pick in the draft. What should, what do you you think they want to do with this pick? And then maybe what do you think they should do with this pick? I think that almost everything should be on the table here, which I think is kind of the consensus opinion. You know, best player available is usually the best approach. And with the Hawks, there's there's lots of buzz. Uh, and it's interesting to see if it's external or internal about maybe using this pick to move down or move out or try to facilitate it in order to compete next year because there's a lot of noise coming out of Atlanta about the team trying to compete in the near term. And it's easy to see why they have a lot of young talent on the roster. And most importantly, for a team that is picking number six overall, they already have the guy they're building around in Trey Young. Um, so that that's a step ahead of a lot of teams in this range. That's a good thing for them to do. And it also opens the board up a little bit for the Hawks, in my view, because they can kind of do almost anything else other than drafting maybe a small guard at six. Um, You could say that center is not a spot that they need anymore after acquiring Click Capella, but for the most part, they can kind of take best player available, and that's a good position to be in, especially if you don't love a single prospect, and maybe they do. Um, But for me, because of kind of how flat this is in this range, unless someone slips unexpectedly, I don't have a you know a, a definitive you know tier busting guy that I'm looking at for the Hawks. It's more like okay, who's available here? Can they move down? Should they move down? I would not look to move up if I was the Hawks. Maybe you can talk me into a swing for Anthony Edwards, maybe for upside purposes. But I'm not a big fan of trading up in this draft. So if you're not going to do that, you're looking kind of for value and you know basically at the two through four spots for the Hawks they have they have needs not necessarily gaping holes they have a bunch of young talent already this is a roster that's still pretty thin though and they can kind of add anybody they want I think I think there's a couple 
couple of reactions that I have to that. One, I'm not actually sure that this is a bad draft to move up on because this is going to be the cheapest draft ever <laughs> Fair to be able to move up in the draft, right? Usually the cost is so ridiculously high to, to take a number one pick or a number two pick that it, it really doesn't make sense for teams to do so. I, I think the Wolves, the Warriors especially, are, are so focused on trading this pick if they can this might be one of those rare scenarios where there's there's value there because those teams are on a different uh, place in their progression than the Hawks are, and, I, and I've heard the same thing. The Hawks want to you know compete this year, and and you know it's it's time. I, I think the concern for the Hawks is the same sort of mistake that the Hornets have made year after year, which is we can compete and be an eighth seed or a seventh seed in the playoffs and get our butts kicked, or we can continue to develop and, and draft and get players in that can ultimately have us competing, not for the playoffs, but for a championship. And I just don't think the Hawks are there, nor will they pick up people on this offseason that are going to move them that far. And so if you can't move that far, especially on a season where I'm not sure you know, how many fans are going to be in the stands, it's going to be a weird season. It's going to just be a weird season next year. This might buy you the extra time to to jump up and actually take a pick. And in your opinion, I'm just really curious, Brad, can you build a championship contender team around Trey Young? I think you can. I think it's not going to be easy because of the weaknesses that everyone knows that he has. It's very hard in general, if you look at history, there are not a lot of championship teams, especially lately, that are built around small guards that have defensive trouble as, as the best player on the team. Um, it's not easy to do that. Is it, is it impossible? No. I think he is the kind of offensive talent that really could be good enough to carry the day in that way. Um, but it is it does present challenges for you team building wise and the Hawks are going to be dealing with that. I think we've already seen them try to deal with it by you know last year they used both lottery picks on wings and I would say defensive minded wings. That was not an accident. They they know in the organization that they're going to have to build a defense that can get to a league average level. They're they're, they're never going to be great defensively with Trey Young as the point guard, but no matter how good you are on offense, you can't be terrible on defense and compete for a championship. There's a level you have to get to, and they know that. Um, and I, I know your uh, former guest and former colleague John Hollinger said this a lot. Using the using a pick in this draft, if you're the Hawks on their timeline, using the pick to turn that into a you know a role player for you um, via trade is not a good use of resource. This is a team that. Yes, they want to compete next year. I understand why. They've been bad now for three seasons. They have a they have a star guard that wants to win, all that stuff, but they have cap space. They don't need to use this asset that they you know they're hoping is their last lottery pick for a while or at least their last high lottery pick for a while. You don't want to just turn that guy into a solid vet. Yes, that would help you, but the concern would be getting ahead of yourself and taking away some of the upside. This is this is still a rebuild. I know they want to be better, but this is they're still in the middle of a rebuild. So I'm with you being more um I would say intentional about not speeding up too fast. And if you're going to speed up the way to do it is to use your cap space, not to forego what is probably going to be your best draft asset for a long time. Let's assume for a minute that they stay at six, uh, that they, they don't trade up or down. Is there a player in this draft in that range that you lo- you personally like for them? Yeah, there's a couple. I think um, early, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's going to be there or not. And early on in the process, I heard this name 
a lot, and it was Isaac Coro out of Auburn. Um, he's someone who is a local Atlanta pr- uh, product, which probably helps some of the buzz early on, I'd imagine. But he also fits what they kind of need as a defensive minded wing player there are questions about his offense particularly his jump shot but a guy who is a hyper athlete and i think does have some upside um not necessarily a pure upside play for you but if he figures out how to shoot there's a lot to like there and i think offensively right now shooting aside he might be underrated i think he attacks the rim pretty well i think he handles the ball pretty well um he attacks closeouts he moves the ball as a passer effectively and then defensively he would be your on-ball defensive ace who can also play a little bit off the ball and make some plays. He is very strong and athletic. Um, we'll see how we how he would fit alongside guys like Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter. But there's nobody on this team right now, other than Trey Young, that you can't um, that you that I would say you worry too much about drafting over or drafting alongside. And I think Okoro would be a guy that I would have circled if he's available. He might be gone by then. There's a chance he goes four or five, I suppose. But I've always kind of liked what he brought to the table, particularly if you buy the shooting. And I don't, I don't know how the Hawks feel about that. And that's one of the bigger questions in the entire draft, quite honestly, is it is basically can Isaac Okoro eventually become a you know league average kind of shooter? If you think he can be, he's probably a top five guy in the class. If he can't then it becomes difficult because we've seen any number of wings that do a lot of things well, but if they can't shoot in the modern NBA, it becomes tough. That's my concern. Uh, that's why he's a little bit lower on my big board, just talking to teams that are deeply concerned about that. They see a, a harder path for him than maybe some other uh, other prospects, certainly not denying some of the other things that he brings to the table. But that that is the bet that you make uh, with him. And uh, so that's a really interesting He's, again, one of these polarizing prospects that is all over the board from, like you said, as high as like four or five uh, down to 10, 11, and 12 on draft boards. Let's talk about the Washington Wizards. What do you think they're going to do with this uh, draft pick, and who do you think that they should take? I think they should be absolutely praying that Anyake Kongwu falls to them at nine. I like Akongwu a lot. He's a top five guy for me, and particularly for Washington, a team that has a lot of offensive talent, especially with John Wall coming back, but this is a team that was kind of legendarily bad defensively this year, and part of that was that they didn't have a rim protector, and no rookie's going to fix that, but I think long-term, if you get a guy like Akongwu who can be a starting center and a capable, versatile, defensive-level center, that'd be very helpful for them. It doesn't have to be a center, though, um, because there's obviously a chance that he's gone by then. And I'm not sure. From there, the Wizards are kind of fascinating because they've they have so much money and investment poured into their backcourt with Bradley Beal and John Wall, and there's all that uncertainty with Wall and what he's going to be after the injury. They have some guys that I like. You know, I really like Troy Brown. I've always been a Troy Brown fan, but can you not draft over Troy Brown? I think you probably can. Same with Rui Hachimura, who I know they just drafted with a lottery pick last year, but he's not a guy that I would necessarily be trying to build around. You're building with him, I suppose. So I think they kind of want maybe some stability defensively more than anything else, but you can't get too picky, I suppose, at number nine overall. I'd be mostly best player available mode, with the exception of a point guard. I think they probably can't go that route given where their backcourt is right now. But anybody three through five, the dream would be a Kongwu. But if you're looking at someone that who somebody probably has to fall that I'm not seeing, um, could Devin Vassell be there for them as a three and D player? That might make some sense. Uh, outside of a Kongwu, there isn't a absolute no-brainer for me, but um, they do have some optionality. I would say uh, basically anyone but a point guard would be where I would go. 
I like that pick for them. I'll also say some NBA teams screwed up if a Kongwu is Agreed. there at nine. Agreed. I, I think, <laughs> and it might happen because again, there's variability on boards and you know teams focused. He to me seems like someone who should definitely be off the board. But there's all sorts of scenarios, you know, Obi Toppin, Denny Avdia. We've talked about Killian Hayes, Tyrese Halliburton. I mean, some of these guys have to be there. And uh, they, they might just be right at that spot, though, where all of those guys are gone. And then they're left with sort of the, you know, Patrick Williams, uh, Devin Vassell, you know, Tyrese Maxey. You know, you, you start getting into this group. And the problem for them is what they really need, what Okongwu brings to the table. There isn't really another prospect like that. Um for a while and and that's that's a that's a bit of a problem for the wizards at nine yeah i agree that's that's kind of the issue is that there really isn't another defensive anchor that's worth taking there if a kongwu is gone and someone like Toppin, if he were to be there i know positionally he's like a combo four five but defensively that's probably untenable with what the wizards already have especially if they're planning on bringing davis bertans back etc they were already so porous defensively that you know Toppin's a lot uh, there's a lot of talent offensively there but there's certain players that um, I'm not sure you want to add with their defensive question marks to that Wizards roster so yeah it's kind of all over the board there's they're probably going to be the team that's standing there um, if the if the board breaks the wrong way for them without an obvious pick which can be good can be bad maybe they would luck into Patrick Williams or Devin Vassell who can sort of fix their defense at least help them fix their defense but uh, yeah, no, no 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 I would say there's not an open a no-brainer for you there unless uh, a Kongwu falls. And this is interesting because then if John Hollinger was here with us, they'd say this is the perfect spot to take Paul Reed. <laughs> Paul, who has elite potential to you know, guard four positions on the floor, I don't think he's going to go that high unless John gets hired on their staff. Precious Achua is a guy who also often gets uh, labeled as, an, again, one of the more versatile defenders in the draft that can do multiple positions. I think that's very, very too too high for him, though I know there are some teams that have him in the lottery. Yeah, we, we agree there. I think that um, Precious is an interesting prospect, especially if you look at him as a, as a small ball center who's versatile defensively, but I am with you. That is too high. I have heard same thing that you have, that there are some teams that think he's a lottery think he's a lottery pick. I don't, I don't necessarily see that, but you know the Wizards are kind of famously, at least in the recent past, um, difficult to gauge. Last year they were one of the teams that was really hard to get a read on before they took Rui Hachimura. And as I was covering the Hawks, who picked right after them, there was some genuine concern about what, what about what, what Washington was going to do because they didn't really leak it. They didn't really have a good feel about what the Wizards might do at uh, at nine last year. They're back at nine this year, and uh, I'm not sure what they're going to do now. Jeff, let's take tackle one more team. They have the 14th pick in the draft. It's the Boston Celtics. Danny Ainge historically is known as one of the better drafters uh, in the NBA. He has a type. There's certain players that he seems to gravitate towards. The Celtics, you know, are on the cusp of something here. Uh, but and and so maybe a draft pick, especially in a draft like this, doesn't make a lot of sense. But Danny Ainge has, has typically liked to have these picks and utilize them well what do you think they'll do at 14 and and who do you like there yeah boston is really fascinating this is hardly an original thought but there's no way they're making all three picks is there i mean it's it's just very interesting to me what they might do because they also have a roster crunch in addition to having three first round picks to they're they're, they're such an obvious trade team it doesn't 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 necessarily have to be the number 14 overall pick 
but somewhere they're going to do something and Danny's not been shy about making moves either. Um, if they stay at 14, I think the, the whole board's kind of in play. And that's one of the benefits for them is that they can take they can afford a swing. They don't have to go out and maybe look for a safe contributor at 14. They have a ton of safety. They have a ton of young players on their roster already. They can maybe take a swing. Uh, and I'm not sure this is the this is the guy they would do it on, but like what about Alexei Pokashevsky at 14? I'm not saying he's worth that pick. But if you're a team that has three first-rounders, Pokashevsky's kind of the ultimate wild-card home-run swing guy in this class, and maybe Boston would take him. I'm not sure he fits Danny's archetype, but that's a guy. I mean, we talked about Precious a second ago. He might be that kind of player. R.J. Hampton would be a swing piece if they wanted to go that way. I truly don't have a firm grasp on what the Celtics are looking for other than I'm at least reasonably confident they're not going to make three picks that all are on the roster next year. I think that's right. I think if Danny has a type, he likes fierce competitors. And that's something that you'll notice in a lot of the guys that they take. Uh, they, they for years, have been brain typing uh, prospects, and there's a particular type of brain type that they like, the ultra-competitive, uh, fierce competitor uh, player. Uh, I do think that, you know, if there's ever been a weakness for the Celtics, it's been at times that, that a little bit of gun shyness Swinging for the for the fences, we think about Giannis Antetokounmpo uh, going 15 uh, to the Bucks in 2013, and the Celtics were all over Giannis. Uh, they knew him well, they liked him, but ended up taking Kelly Olynyk uh, instead, which was considered at the time, you know, a safer pick. And so, is this? I, I think you raise a good point. Are they finally in a position where they can make a big swing like that? There aren't a lot of guys, frankly at 14 that are going to be big swing <laughs> players. You know, Jaden McDaniels yeah. is probably the other guy, big swing player. There does seem to be a lot of vari- variability on Tyrell Terry and and what what he's going to look like at the next level, but I'm not even sure that the the folks that really like Tyrell Terry are thinking that he has, you know, elite potential. Um they're they're looking at that three-point shooting. Uh is, is there anybody else in your mind uh, beside Pokachevsky, who you think is a high upside, uh, but you know, swing for the fences type prospect, as we get into the late lottery mid first round. Yeah, I mean, not really. I, I kind of agree with you. I mean, I guess you could talk me into R.J. Hampton if he was still available as that you know hyper athletic mm-hmm. guard with some scoring acumen. He could certainly pop. Uh, I'm not over the moon about him, but you can at least see the tools there. Um, I'm not sure they would do this, but what about someone like Cole Anthony, who used to be a top five prospect in this class? And they don't really have a need there, but maybe if you're Danny, you see that competitiveness and that fire and a guy who has pedigree and might have fallen too far. I'm not sure I would do that either, but um, I'm overall I'm, I'm I'm on the same page with you here that there isn't there aren't just overwhelming options when it comes to swings. We've mentioned all of them now, I think, with, with McDaniel's and Pokashevsky, but I mean you're, you're kind of you're kind of grasping at straws, and I think. Uh, just to reiterate, I think I would certainly monitor Danny Ainge for a trade of some sort by the draft or on the draft night. He's Brad Rowland. You can listen to him on Locked On Hawks on a daily basis on the Locked On Podcast Network. Really appreciate all the insight that you brought to us uh, thinking about the 2020 NBA draft, Brad. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chad. All right. We will be back next time with John Hollinger. And John Hollinger and I are going to be redrafting the 2019 
NBA draft and seeing if there's any lessons for the 2020 NBA draft. You've been listening to Chad Ford's NBA Big Board on the Locked On Podcast Network. Aloha. Aloha.